You're listening to Creative Capes by Future London Academy. Honest conversations with designers, entrepreneurs and innovators. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Hello everyone, hello innovators, hello creative directors and thinkers around the world. Welcome to another productive conversation here at Future London Academy. I'm Ekaterina and I'm here with Lisla Blanc, the <laughs> Associate Head of Design at LiveWork. Hello Liz, welcome. Hello, thanks for having me. So LiveWork is one of the oldest, or num- the, the oldest yeah. service design consultancy in the world. It was founded 17 years ago. Mm-hmm. So what makes LiveWork different? Can you tell a bit more about what LiveWork does, what service design means to LiveWork? Sure. A bit of introduction. The short story and the, really the history behind the name is sort of we're here to improve the way people live and work. So live, we all use services all the time. Most of us were born in a service in a hospital or uh, surrounded by services. We use them every day. Um, and many of us, myself included, provide a service. So that's, I like to improve the way that I work as well. But really, when we talk about the beginning of live work, uh, essentially the founders said, well, we'd like to start our own thing because we don't want to work that much. Uh, so it's better to work for yourself if you don't want to do that. Uh, the live work balance is pretty excellent. But also there was a real strong emphasis around sustainability and kind of moving away from traditional product, physical product design. Even the best made products, the best design products will end up in a landfill somewhere and so this ability to sort of scale and to to do more and have a bigger impact the sort of services was the next obvious steps a client will come to us with a a problem that they don't they don't really know what the problem is yet and so it's a lot of problem definition as much as it is problem solving and so we have lots of different um training decks and methods and techniques for getting people kind of to think in a broader service spectrum so it's not just one moment in time i'd say the biggest part of it is sort of thinking that every service is a sequence of events that it's you know it happens over time it's much more complex and it's it's an experience that people go through that has you know emotional ups and downs and different interaction points and once you can start getting them to think more in sequences as opposed to you know individual entities then that i think really starts to shift can you give an example of this tool or technique they use with a client that came Mm. with a kind of uncertain problem or not a problem yet. My favorite clients that I've had since I started at LiveWork, uh, my very first day is actually, it's a horseshoe manufacturer. <laughs> they kind of, okay, so they understood, yep, services, we know what those are. We, we make horseshoes, we make nails, we make rasps, we make hammers. Um, but then to say, okay, well, but then what's the service that's provided? And for them, their real big question is, how do we get closer to our end customers? Because previously what they'd done is, um, a few years before that, they had done a survey, which they actually went out and did in person. So they would sit with somebody for two or three hours and just ask them the questions and note down what they said, but without any, without any follow-up, without any kind of digging into, okay, but what are your challenges? What are your, it was sort of, you know, how do you feel about us, how you, your products, and then the delivery times and that kind of thing. And at the time, they'd had some struggles with logistics and distribution, so they got some fairly negative feedback. And when we went out and did the interviews and trained them how to kind of work in a little bit different way, just be a bit more open, you know, not really sticking to an interview script, but just talking with people and trying to understand them, we learned a lot more. And actually the CEO, who is like five, sixth generation, he's like, he said, we, you know, 
this method managed to find out more about our customers and we've been doing this for 200 years and so that was that's part part of the best part of my job is actually going out and just sitting and talking with people we so we went to their homes we went to their work i sat there as they you know put a shoe on a horse which is very dusty Dusty and hot and smells terrible but (laughs) you get to know them a lot better and so you say okay well you know what's your retirement plan this really dangerous job have you thought about this what will you do and it was at that point that they realized that farriers are really good at putting shoes on horses, but they're really bad at running a business. I think one of the so sort of the spine of the customer experience program there is a customer journey architecture framework. So this is across the whole life cycle of the customer, what are all the different journeys that they go through? And then it's being able to say, okay, so if we have certain customers who are unaware of a service, how do you shift them from unaware to aware? How do you shift them from aware to using? Um, and then looking at it sort of changing the way that they see how their customers move back and forth between these different stages. I was very happy to say I did not do this, but they did it on their own. So there's a 10 point strategy and the architecture framework that the CEOs and the head of customer experience have laminated and keep with them at all times, which they just like pull it out and they're just like, well, and it's made a big difference because now when they talk about, you know, somebody's in customer service, and they're sort of complaining about, oh, the, the customer said this or that, because mm-hmm. everyone likes to complain about their job. Yeah, it's a yeah. universal thing. Always. No matter how good it is, you find a, a thing to complain about. But they have this, this, because they now have this framework, they say, okay, well, where? Mm-hmm. You know, where is the breakdown? Mm-hmm. What happens? And it then certainly turns a kind of a, you know, a little bit of a moan into, oh, actually, we can do something mm-hmm. about this. And how do you measure the success of each of these things? Because you mentioned you piloted this new mm-hmm. way of interaction with the customers. Mm-hmm. What are the success metrics? How do you know, okay, this was good? Is 1% increase of sales enough to say yeah. this was a good, good thing to do? Actually, so my colleagues have just finished um, finished working on a whole evaluation project mm-hmm. with Public Health England, which is about this exactly. So Public Health England was sort of, you know, the question is, broadly speaking, I'm paraphrasing here, is, you know, we have lots of different uh, new digital services. Mm-hmm. How do we know if they are actually effective and they work? Mm-hmm. Um, so we worked with them to sort of help them develop an evaluation process. So they worked with, you know, health apps like a Couch to 5K, for example. Um, they said, okay, great. Just because just because you launched the service and there's a lot of users, is it actually better for these people's health? You know, just because they've downloaded it and they they kind of they're using it you know what are the what are the physical outcomes mm-hmm. that are are actually happening you know are people you know it's kind of hard to tell like are they, are they going to live longer <laughs> i don't know we haven't gotten there yet um but in you know they did short medium and long-term indicators yeah. of is this successful you know mm-hmm. okay so are people using it their blood pressure their heart like you know all these different sort of indicators along the way to sort of say okay it's not just that the app was made and launched is it impacting people's health in a meaningful a sustainable way like that is the more important question of whether or not PHE should fund something not just can you build an app sure have some funding yeah. that's not the way we don't have enough money to float around for that yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah it's like super super critical question of saying you know how, how do you measure success because it's not just we did the project we built the thing and so it is successful at LiveWork it's that's not that's not what we're about at all it's not we're not designers to to make lovely things, although mm-hmm. that is a sweet part of the job. We, we actually want to, to do something to make a difference. Mm-hmm. So something doesn't end when it's a shiny case on the website. Mm-hmm. It has to go on. It has to live a lot longer than that. That's why we're doing this. As silly as it sounds, like 
pretty much everyone at Live Work is there because they want to to meaningfully contribute mm-hmm. to to make the world a better place. Oh, it's um, yeah, <laughs> definitely what we're here. All it's lofty, but yeah. we're we're working I, on it. I, 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 <laughs> How long after the project finishes you actually stay connected to the client? Because I assume all years. of this years. years. What if yeah. they're not your client anymore? Because uh, all mm. these metrics are very important mm. for you as a company just to tell other clients, yeah. first of all, let's, let's be realistic, but also sure. just to general curi- design curiosity, did yeah. everything that we put our passionate engine, did it work? Mm. But I assume not every client has time to keep in touch with you and measure these things and keep right. you updated. Yeah. I mean, and it does happen that, you know, two years after you do the project, that, that client has a complete reorg and the whole, that whole department doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. That does and has happened. But we try as much as possible to develop really personal relationships mm-hmm. with people. We many times often greet clients with hugs. We are a very open human uh, group of people. Mm-hmm. Creating those relationships that will last even if that person leaves the organization mm-hmm. or some of they aren't our clients anymore. But we try as much as possible not to create a kind of hard stop at the end of a project. There is no, you know, ta-da, we delivered this and then we walk away. It usually, we got into this like long tail of engagement of sort of checking in and making mm-hmm. sure, okay, is this working? Is it there? And that's not time that we obviously build to them. Um, it's time that we want to be there as a support for them. So it's not just a launch and forget. We try to maintain those individual relationships. And I think that's, that's where a lot of the power comes in. And actually, just this week, we had a kind of a, a whole live work all together away day. And our guest speaker is a client who, as of a few weeks ago, um, isn't a client anymore. So he's left the organization that we were working with. But he's like, yeah, but you guys are great. And so I'm, he came in. It was really interesting because he came basically to give us feedback and to say, okay, well, you know, here's where live work is excellent. Here's where there was some things that, you know, and he, we worked with him for years, but now he's, he's just moving on, you know, personal, professionally. He was like, yeah, I'm going to go take some time off. I'm going to do a little bit of freelancing on my own. And he was once a consultant himself. So he was a, more of a management consultant side. So he was really able to give us some nice insight and feedback because, of course, as service providers, we'll also constantly service designing ourselves. Um, so it was really interesting to have that perspective and to have that relationship you know i think it comes with the way that we work with people we often or at least i I speak for the whole company um i often start a lot of meetings with how are we feeling like you know how how are you instead of just oh yeah how's it going so let's you know here's the agenda for today you really you start with the human side of it and you you know Oh, I can ask them about their kids. I can ask them about their partners or that, you know, oh, that PhD you're doing or you're selling your house. How like, I think that really helps to build trust because mm-hmm. service design, you know, it mitigates as much risk as possible, but it is change. It is different. It can be scary. And so if you can at least trust somebody enough to do that then and have those conversations, then I think the work becomes a lot more interesting and you move a lot further, a lot faster if you're a person instead of an outside consultant. I think people are really suspicious of them. <laughs> I agree. And I think uh, it's such a great thing that you mentioned that we forget about the human aspect of people who are behind the project. Yeah. Are there any other things that help you to develop this culture inside your company that makes mm. people more empathic, more creative mm. and uh, come up with better solutions? That's a good question. I mean, we so we have our own 
our own set of um, internal working mm-hmm. principles. We have a lot of really, at least in the London studio, we have a lot of really serious conversations about how we work together, mm-hmm. how we communicate, always trying to get better at feedback, trying to get better at more casual, informal feedback mm-hmm. as opposed to your annual review. It's not yeah. usually like, if that's your only venue for feedback, you're in <laughs> trouble. Um, we're quite a social group of people. Um, we're also quite a small studio, so we're only about 20 people. That includes all the designers, that includes finance, that includes um, resourcing, management, that's everyone, 20. And so working on a project with somebody, which we've worked with just about everyone, you get to know them really well. And then we also try as much as possible so that it's not just like the designers and the rest, but really bringing in everybody together. There's only a few live workers whose house I haven't been to, whose partners I don't know, whose kids I don't know. We try, you know, as much as there's that live and work boundary, <laughs> we, I think we blur it a lot. And I think part of that is because we are such an international group. Mm-hmm. There's a lot, a lot of the designers at least um, have kind of, we've moved from somewhere else. You know, my story is very typical. And so your work is the people that you know very well. And so, a lot of the people, when they came to London, they came just for work and didn't have a whole, you know, established group of best friends. And the people you spend a lot of time with are, of course, your colleagues. And yeah, we, you know, it's, we try and see each other outside of work as much as inside of work. And so that, I think, helps a lot to kind of break down that. This is my colleague. Those are my friends. Like, it's very blurred. It's, you know, if there's a housewarming, if there's a birthday party, if everyone's invited, which I think... It's can maybe a bit strange sometimes, but it's good. <laughs> well, I I love the concept of it, but in a in a real life, I have a feeling that it might cause some problems as well. If mm. someone has to be fired, if someone did something bad, like yeah. how do you manage that? That's so. I think generally the people that I have left because um, they weren't quite happy with it mm-hmm. or whatever, they. It's, you can almost, you can tell before it happens because mm-hmm. they tend to start to remove themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think actually that, you know, the way that the, the social part of our work comes in, they start to remove themselves from that. Then you can say, okay, there's not quite something mm-hmm. going on here. And I'd say like, you know, people are friends at work to greater and lesser extent. Not everyone is best friends with everybody all the time because mm-hmm. we don't live very close <laughs> to each other. London is big. <laughs> I think it's was maybe more of a problem in the past when there was different working styles and different kind of expectations. But if somebody's quitting, you generally know several months in advance um, and you get really excited because they finally got that, that dream job in mm-hmm. another country that they were really excited about. So it's, it's bittersweet, but it's, yeah, it's... I think they go to a competitor. That has not happened very recently, I don't think so. Or at least not a straight up like mm-hmm. service design to service design mm-hmm. agency. Sometimes it's, you know, I really miss working with developers, so mm-hmm. I'll go and do that. Or um, most recently, I want to move back to Italy. Okay, go do that. Like, mm-hmm. Actually, yeah, that hasn't, that hasn't happened a ton. And if they do, it had, I think it was because they'd been at LiveWork quite quite a long time actually and it was more of a change of pace mm-hmm. you know been there for seven years I'm going to take some time off mm-hmm. and get out of service design but then actually they just ended up <laughs> into it yeah I don't think it was a, a huge issue and with having such a small studio and I assume lots of projects mm. how first of all how many projects do you personally work on right now and in mm. general how many 
projects the person will be involved in at the same moment? Yeah, so for client projects, I'm on three right now, two for one client, one for another, and they'll tend to overlap. For whatever reason, mm -hmm. I tend to be on at least three or four projects yeah. at a time. I think most of us prefer to be on maybe two at a time because mm -hmm. then you get that break and that mm -hmm. mental shift. You kind of have a, one main project and then maybe a smaller one, so you might be mm -hmm. leading one project and then assisting on another mm -hmm. and kind of dipping in and out of a mm -hmm. third. And how do you manage your time or the studio time in general? Because switching between things is mm. very hard. And especially you being a, a manager, a mm. director, you have also other responsibilities of yep. looking after people, yep. running other things that people don't see. So how do you manage your time? Yeah, I'm uh, fiercely protective of internal time mm -hmm. so that I do have the time to answer those responsibilities. Everyone manages their calendars and days differently. I tend to be quite fluid with mine. I don't like to have everything super packed. I prefer to be able to be flexible because mm -hmm. I get a lot of requests throughout the day. Mm -hmm. You could also call them interruptions, but that's the <laughs> pessimistic way of looking at it, but requests. And so I like to be able to answer them. If not, yes, okay, I'll do this right now, but it might be a no, but it's a, or a, it's a no, but take a look at this or talk to this mm -hmm. person or see what mm -hmm. that is. I like to be able to be responsive mm -hmm. in that way. And then with projects, it's then about sort of blocking out as much time. Of course, the more complex things get, the less your schedule really belongs to you. Um, and then from a studio-wide perspective, we have a, we, a dedicated resourcing manager who is a saint <laughs> um, and, and handles all of our project requests and works with the leads to say, okay, who needs what? And if a, a junior is on several projects, you, you talk to the lead, you work with them, and we're really protective of our staff that we don't overbook people that mm -hmm. even if they're at, if somebody is booked for on a project for 40 hours in the week, that's too much. Because that means they don't have time for lunch. That means they don't have time to talk to their colleagues. They don't have time to attend a lecture or write an article for the website. You know, you need to have that extra space. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're 40 hours billable working, your email is a mess. You're not responding to messages. You don't, you can't be a good colleague. Mm -hmm. Also, you're exhausted. <laughs> yeah. And if, you know, if anyone says they're working on the weekends, not impressed with that. It's, there's, you don't get extra points for working late. <laughs> good. We're really, really fiercely strict about that. So mm -hmm. we have our, I mean, very practically, mm -hmm. so it's a weekly meeting every Friday mm -hmm. to say, okay, what's coming up this week? What's happening? You know, okay, I need, I need this person. Do you need them on a specific day? Mm -hmm. No, but at the end of the week would be better. And we kind of, it's this puzzle that works itself out or tries to work itself out as much as possible. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's balancing. And then also, I think, protecting that mm -hmm. non-client non, non working time. Yeah. Of course, it's all working time. But yeah, and lunch, making sure everyone has time for lunch. <laughs> lunch is at one o'clock. Everyone sits, everyone stops working and goes and sits and eats together, which I think is actually really, really important for when there is a small studio mm -hmm. of getting everybody to sort of take a deep breath and, and sit together and talk and usually not talk about work actually <laughs> <laughs> talk about anything but work every monday we have a meeting saying uh, okay whatever what's everyone up to what's happening this week our clients in the studio um and there are you know just like any organization has especially a consultancy these kind of really insane uh, busy periods and then slower periods. Mm -hmm. And one of the kind of perpetual challenges of the balance between resourcing and sales is 
you know, how do you make sure that those like peaks and valleys mm-hmm. aren't so drastic? Because what you mm-hmm. don't want is everyone to get really stressed and then to be bored for three weeks. At any given time, more than half of our projects are repeat clients. Mm-hmm. That is very helpful because then we say, actually, if you can, you know, Liz can be on this project. If you skip it out for another week, if you can wait another week, mm-hmm. then that will free up this time because then this project mm-hmm. closes. And having that relationship means that the client isn't like, no, we need this now. We're starting now. Mm-hmm. That tends to usually happen only with new clients, which then we'll, we'll do our best to accommodate that. Mm-hmm. But with existing clients, you can be a bit more flexible. And of course, we're likewise flexible with them. If they say, oh, we have not done this yet. Can we skip it out? And mm-hmm. we say, okay, yeah, we'll we'll work on it, which sometimes is really great. Just yesterday, a whole resourcing mess resolved itself because a client said, oh, actually, I need to get this visa and it's going to be another week. So <laughs> the whole thing just fixed itself, which was super cool. Oh, um, those moments, that yeah. was really, we were like, that would, that would be fine. That would, I think that would be okay. We can do that. We can, yeah. we can do that. And with your personal time, so mm. because you're quite hands-on with clients, you are in in the studio mm. what does your typical day look like I, I also noticed that you have a, a, a wristwatch which yeah, is a, a dumb, I have a dumb watch as yeah. I have it does nothing but tell me the time which is which is a, a, apparently <laughs> a new thing for productivity because yeah. our phones distract us too much I mean actually the reason I got the watch was client uh, focus is because when I was in a workshop or working with a client mm-hmm. if I used my phone to check the time it looks like I'm checking messages or it looks like I'm waiting Mm. for something else that I'm not physically Mm. in the room. So I make a really good point of not having my phone present in workshops. I don't use it as a timer. I don't, I just, the the watch is enough. Um, That's enough complexity there (laughs) for me. I try to keep my mornings quiet. Um, That's usually when I do heads down focusing space. Um, And then in the afternoon, more collaborative, more open Mm -hmm. things and and getting people together. And and if you have to really Mm -hmm. work through something, I prefer that in the afternoon. And then Friday afternoon tends to be administrative tasks because that's what my brain can handle at that point in time. Um, One of our junior designers, actually, she starts, she started doing kind of personal retros at the end of every week. So saying, okay, let me look back and say what was good, what didn't work. Um, And I think we really encourage people to be reflective about their work and say, okay, well, what's working, what's not Mm -hmm. working. I'm saying yes to these things because I really want to be involved, but I don't actually Mm -hmm. have the time. So how can I say no? while still providing them with some value mm-hmm. and learning these different things. Uh, learning to say no is a huge, like, everybody needs to learn this skill. And, and we're naturally excited and curious and engaging. And I think live workers in general tend to be very generous people. With That's, that's part of our, our culture. Um, and you want to be a part of something. But it's also saying, okay, but if I'm part of this, then I have to give up something else. Or... I, there's this thing that I really care about, but actually if I try to contribute to it and don't have the time, then it won't be what I want it to be. You have this interesting concept of professional amateur mm-hmm. that uh, you wrote about, and I found it very interesting and kind of in a whole idea of service design. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a bit about that? Uh, it's ruffled a few feathers when I say this, but I think service designers and designers in general really are have to be professional amateurs and professional meeting there is a the, there's a definite design process there are um, ways of doing things that are right and are less right or less appropriate but in the same way the, the amateur of open to new things open to trying open to failing open to learning especially and that's where we get into that humble bold thing another one of our internal principles is that everyone has something to teach and much more to learn and so it's not being afraid to offer something but also being open to 
to learning something new or, or doing that. And I think there's no way that I could say ever, yes, I know all of the answers and this is it because I'm constantly being pushed into new fields that I know zero things about. Horseshoes <laughs> as a prime example. And so, I'm sure you're an expert now, though. <laughs> probably not. Um, depends on uh, expert expertise is relative. Um, but you have to have that that open mindset, that ability to just absorb and just sit and listen um, to somebody who knows more than you do, whether that's a neurosurgeon or a farrier or a banker, whatever it is. But still maintaining being professionalized and like I'm be, I'm really really good at being an amateur and being new to something while still having a really strong foundation and expertise and the skills that come with, you know, being a designer and having a process and having, you know, there are tools and methods that mm-hmm. I uh, rely on and some of them are complex and some of them you can do with your eyes closed. But I mean, I think everyone should um, get good at not knowing mm-hmm. and, and being really comfortable with saying, I don't know. You know, it's as old as time, but that, you know, the mistakes you make or the, the ones you make alone of like not asking or, be, or thinking, oh, I, if I know this and I'll just rush through mm-hmm. and I'll do my best. And if I tell anybody that I don't know, they'll think I'm stupid. But mm-hmm. actually, the opposite is true. You tell them that you don't know. Okay, I'm, I'm unaware. You're not you're stupid. You're just, you've never done this before. Mm-hmm. And so you can't march through work you can't march through anything just thinking i'm i'll figure it out and i'll do it you have to just you learn a lot faster if you tell someone that you don't mm-hmm. know and then they teach you it's yeah. a lot it's easier to do that so while i think it's really prevalent in design work and in any sort of consulting or it's the same thing you know if you're a journalist or if you're if you're going into all these different places um you're always learning something new which is I mean, that's why I became a designer in the first place is because you get to explore into these weird little worlds. And I think it also comes with experience. The more experienced you are, the the more scared you are to look and experience. Yeah, so... yeah. and it's that's the thing is that it doesn't make you any less experienced yeah. to admit that you don't have experience yeah. in something else, you yeah. know? It's the same thing like when you say, like, oh, it's not rocket science, yeah. or it's not brain surgery. Well, I know brain surgeons who say, well, it's just brain surgery. But, <laughs> you know, that's the same thing. It's it's all relative. Expertise yeah. is, is totally on its own, and yeah. it's... Not knowing one thing doesn't diminish your mm-hmm. your power and intelligence in something else. How to scale service design in big organizations mm. because it's a great concept and works very well in small teams and small mm. agencies and creative companies. As soon as you go into massive traditional organization, a bank, multinational, global with mm. lots of offices, it becomes very difficult. Uh, what's your advice on that and how not to keep service design <coughs> siloed in one team that does mm. it well how to spread it across organizations yeah i mean i think part of it is you know don't do it all at once mm-hmm. you can't just blanket here we're completely changing the way we think there's um you you usually start small with one project and say okay so here's a different way of working and mm-hmm. the service design with us is largely about changing the way that you change mm-hmm. and saying so here's a different process you know, with the hospice, for example, we were working for like a year and a half and, and really ready to launch this pilot and, and figuring things out. And they realized, actually, they said, you know, we want everyone to be able to do this, mm-hmm. to work in this way, you know, to test out ideas and be much more open and free with that. But the problem is that it's a medical environment. It's end of life care. It's something that's really precious. And so people were not like, let's just try stuff. And so part of that was about saying, OK, well, 
let's involve lots of people from all over the organization in this first part of the project. That worked quite well. And then after a while, they sort of realized, oh, we have lots of people who are afraid to try ideas, who aren't really mm-hmm. taking this up. And they said, okay, well, service design is that thing that's happening up over there. A lot of our workshops were like in the on the second floor and kind of in the far back corner. So it was like physically and literally (laughs) over there. And they were like, that's not for me. Mm -hmm. And so it was about really kind of opening that up. So we invited a whole new group of people and we said, okay, you come with ideas um, and we'll do a prototyping clinic. And so it was everything from a nurse-led ward to instructional videos to a children's book, you know, all these different things. Mm -hmm. And we just spent a day working with them. And they said, you know, actually just talking to somebody and getting mm-hmm. that, that that was kind of a, a breakthrough moment for them but then for the same you know on a larger scale working with clothing retailer to say okay well how do you scale this way of working so it was that was much more about really aligning all of the things that you do into a customer journey so you say here's all your here's your to-do list and here's all the different points along the journey that it impacts this customer and that, so that was a big breakthrough moment for a smaller team but then to say okay how do you how do you scale that move? And it was a combination of um, kind of workshop trainings, small group trainings, one-on-one to be able to say, okay, well, it's a balance between making something that is um, efficient and uniform and can just be multiplied Mm -hmm. while still maintaining a flexibility that said, okay, but this group needs to kind of tweak it in this way Mm -hmm. and this group needs to tweak it in that way because then that creates ownership. You know, so it's not being too precious with it and saying, well, you know, here's the box and you have to keep the box perfect and here's exactly what you need to do, steps one through ten, and it's a checklist Mm -hmm. because it still needs to adapt to the way that they work and adapt the way that they communicate as a team. And so then that's about sort of scaling that slowly and saying, okay, so, and the whole organization doesn't need to be at the same stage of maturity at the same time. They'll all grow at different rates and move at different rates because some are more complex than others. So... They, one group may need to take a little bit more time and figure things out and perhaps change some of the way that they're working or a different system or software, whatever it is, in order to deliver that. So it's making sure that your solutions are fit for purpose. If we ask our clients to have empathy for their customers, then we certainly need to do the same thing. If somebody's frustrated, if they're irritated, if they've stormed out of the workshop, <laughs> then it's trying to and this isn't my term but to to give them the most generous assumption Mm -hmm. so what's the most generous assumption that i can make about their current day Mm -hmm. maybe their kids sick home from school maybe they had a fight with their partner maybe they're Mm -hmm. um stressed about something maybe their boss is a total jerk maybe they realize that actually what we're doing right now isn't going to work because somebody else is saying something completely different and they know so it's asking a lot of questions. It's saying, okay, so what? where's this resistance? Where does this come mm-hmm. from? And, and sometimes it's just because what their job is and what they've been told to do is completely the opposite of what you're trying to do. So with the hospice, they, you know, the clinical services director and the fundraising uh, director were getting kind of in this, you know, debate of should we do this and should we not? And the fundraising director was really like, we cannot change things. We cannot do, because her job is to make sure that they have enough funding to exist forever. Like that is her, that's her goal, her mission. She's like, I need to make sure that we're here in 50 years time. And the clinical services director says, yeah, but why? (laughs) Like if actually, if we do this really well, the community will be able to support itself and we will be seen, we can be enablers and we can step back and maybe one day they won't need us. 
And so it was this huge, it's a, it's a mentality shift, but without asking her, you know, mm-hmm. usually there's a pretty good reason if people are not into something. And maybe it's just because they're, you know, they don't like change and they're about to retire in two years and they don't want to <laughs> learn something new right before they leave, yeah. which is totally valid. I'd get that. I wouldn't want to learn anything new. And yeah. I was like, I'm just sailing out of here. So yeah, there's always going to be, you know, somebody that fights mm-hmm. it and somebody that doesn't want to mm-hmm. do things. But yeah, I find asking questions mm-hmm. tends, and then they say, oh, okay, this turns out this designer is not totally malicious and they're not here to figure out all my flaws. And I had that happen with a nurse once. I was shadowing her, which she did not know I was coming. And I showed up at 7.30 when her shift started. And then her manager said, okay, she's going to follow you around all day. And I had my notes and I had questions and I'm noting down as much as possible because it was really difficult to recruit for this bit of research. And so I said, okay, I have to get every fact I can possibly think of because my time here Mm -hmm. is so very short. And then at lunch, she was kind of, she was like, oh, so you're going to write a, a report about how effective I am. And I said, well, no, not at all. Like, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, you know, how, how I can help make things easier. And she looked at me like I was bonkers. <laughs> and I said, she says, okay, because there was a, I don't know, a politician or whatever, and he'd released some big report and had done this huge study. And it said that nursing home employees were not effective enough. And so she was quite irritated about this. And so I realized that, oh, okay, so she thinks that's what I'm here doing. Mm-hmm. And so then I turned around and I just showed her my notes. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, I've, I've put a star every time somebody interrupts you. Because my assignment for that was, you know, there's, the service is generally pretty good, but there's these little things that just constantly seem mm-hmm. to be falling through the cracks and trying to figure out why. Well, it turns out she was interrupted, I think, 43 times that wow. day. And, and it was like, sometimes she's in the middle of like, putting on somebody's clothes and then they call her and saying, Oh, can you bring juice to this thing? Like, it's just, she's like, no, I'm busy. I'm doing more important things or wrapping up somebody's arm in a cast. You know, it's like, so then I started to show her and I said, here's, here's what I'm looking at. You can read my notes. And then that was a real shift. And so from her saying like, what are you doing here? Please go away (laughs) to, okay. And then she started to tell me all the different things Mm -hmm. and, and lots more rich information than I ever would have gotten just by shadowing her because she was then much more transparent and she would explain what she was doing and she would talk things mm-hmm. through. And there was a, a moment at, towards the end where she was like, actually, I'm just going to go run to do this thing, but if you can help this woman put her bra on, <laughs> super. And I was like, okay, cool. Um, so then then that was my job then. And so, because I was, I had to be dressing in the nurse's scrubs because to not to disrupt yeah. too much. and. I want to talk a little bit about the future as well, because mm. we all think about where this world is going oh, yeah. and what will happen to all of us. And I've seen you also doing some research about the future of service design mm-hmm. and service designers, mm-hmm. what kind of skills they need to have. So uh, what kind of skills service designers will need to have very soon? Yeah, I mean, there's lots to talk about kind of, okay, so service designers, you're kind of in everywhere, so you need to know everything. But because the world is increasingly complex, you cannot know everything. Mm-hmm. You can't be an expert in data and policy and tech and human interactions and behavior and psychology. This is not possible. Our human brains are not fast enough for it. So I think really the skills that everyone is going to need to learn is that you, you need to learn how to work well with other people. I, you know, I so service design is a team sport. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not, you know, the, the days of, uh, you know, a genius designer sitting away in their studio thinking up grand ideas mm-hmm. is over. That's gone. The world is much more complex and becomes moving faster and faster every day. So it's about 
being able to identify those moments where you say, actually, I have no idea what we're talking about right now, but I will find out who does and I will work with them and being able to bring somebody into a team. So not knowing or being able to identify what you don't know, being able to admit what you don't know, and then being able to work with people and to say, okay, you know, service designers, I feel are not so much another brick we're mortar in between that Mm -hmm. we're the sort of the collector the somebody we bringing lots of different people together and i think that's our strength and it unfortunately makes service design really hard to explain to some people sometimes Mm -hmm. you do (laughs) you know it's just one of those everyone every service designer has a moment where they accept their Mm -hmm. parents will never know what they do and that's fine (laughs) then you're like just no but and because it's always changing because what we do for one project is very different Mm -hmm. than what we do for the next and you're it's our adaptability and are mm-hmm. able to sort of work in between things. Mm-hmm. Though I do think, you know, that kind of idea of a, a service design that, designer that does a little bit of everything will probably become more of a junior role. And then mm-hmm. generally people will start to specialize either in behavior or in data or in, you know, will find different fields. Mm-hmm. So you'll be, you know, a particular flavor of service designer. But the idea of, yeah, a jack of all trades, I do a bit of everything, probably will go away pretty soon because you're going to need to to work in a certain area and have some depth. Mm-hmm. You can't maintain the shallow because it gets broader and broader and mm-hmm. you'll stretch too thin. So you'll have a bit of depth and then also be able to, to identify those places that you say, actually, I'm not going to be able to... And are these mainly new technologies that like data or robotics or is it the industry? So you'll be a service designer in manufacturing or service mm. designer in travel? No, I think it's more, um, I could, maybe because I work so cross-sector and I think that's where the really interesting work comes mm-hmm. from is when a designer is on a project you know, in healthcare and manufacturing mm-hmm. or in transportation and in banking. That's mm-hmm. when you get those that kind of adjacent possible, those the stretching ideas and different inspiration, that's where really great ideas come yeah. from. So I don't think it's so much sector, although if you know some people have particular passions around healthcare, around mm-hmm. policy, around uh, you know, cars or whatever it is that you're in love with, do that because you need people that are super mm-hmm. passionate about something and you shouldn't ignore a passion ever. But then at the same time, I think it's going to be much more around, you know, as an ex- somebody who's an expert in psych- has additional depth in psychology mm-hmm. or sociology or has, you know, super interested in trends or foresight or, you know, it's mm-hmm. these type of not sector knowledge, but subject matter knowledge mm-hmm. that that's where, you know, we're going to start to, to shift. I always certainly see it at live work, people that are super in depth, really into behavioral design and behavioral changes. And mm-hmm. how do you, how do you build habits? How do you get people to change things? Especially when we have projects in the healthcare sphere, you know, that's um, those are habits that are really hard to change. So that's super important. But then also on the other side, looking at data, being able to work, you know, with developers, you have mm-hmm. to be able to speak to these different people and you have to have a certain depth of knowledge to be able to do that. You can't just completely fake it if we try sometimes. So what would you recommend to, uh, let's say, a service designer who is having a, a great career right now working and enjoying doing service design, mm. but maybe do, does not have the second degree or mm. a passion yet? 
what what should they do? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you need a second degree um, or third, depending on <laughs> fourth, depending on who you are. I think it's more about having a curiosity. Mm-hmm. And so it's not so much of like, what is my deep passion? But what are you curious about? Mm-hmm. What are you interested in? I'm really interested in human relationships. So where that comes in is, you know, okay, that's that's organizations and not just like the structure with the boxes and the arrows and this is our organization, but how do teams work together? How do you build those? And so that's something that I'm personally trying to explore. And it, I'm not gonna get a, a degree in it. I'm done with school, <laughs> never. It's being curious about something and if there's, you know, dig a bit more into it and see if that's interesting and see if something, you know, pulls you into it. What projects were really exciting to you? Okay, then what was exciting about that mm-hmm. project? Okay, that's your that's something mm-hmm. you're curious about. That's something you're interested in. So, run at, run after that. Mm-hmm. And if it turns out to be really boring after two weeks of of looking into it, then find something else. There's plenty. <laughs> great. I think that's definitely a great way to explain kind of the path to find your potential passion. Mm-hmm. I have a last question for you, sure. and this is the question to, that I ask to all wonderful people that I meet because you'll inspire many, many people around the world. Okay. <laughs> so if you could change one thing in the world, what mm. would it be? I'd change the ratio of listening to talking. I think we don't listen enough. And as somebody who talks too much and rambles on sometimes, I think... I think the world would be a lot better place and a more compassionate, more interesting, more evolved place if we listened. I mean, that's the two ears, one mouth. You'd listen twice as much as you speak. I think we'd get a lot further. We'd have less conflict. We'd, we'd, we'd be beyond in every possible aspect. I think that's what I would change. We need to listen more. That is really good advice. I feel like I need to think about this myself. <laughs> I love talking to you. Just so. super philosophical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, great. Thanks a lot, Liz. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Really inspiring. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Thanks a lot, everyone, for listening. And those of you who will be lucky enough to be in London in March for our Design Thinking and Innovation Week, we'll meet Liz in person at Livework Studio and we'll <laughs> see where they spend their time and come up with all these wonderful ideas. And we'll ask Liz even more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel and uh, please do leave us a review because we put a lot of effort finding brilliant minds here in London. So it would really help other people to discover these conversations if you leave us a review. And if you prefer to see how Liz looks, you can go to our YouTube channel, Future London Academy, and you can actually see the video of this conversation. Thanks a lot for listening to us and until next time.